as the preaching of the Word of God is in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. Mark 15 and verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We have recorded in the Gospels several things that Jesus said when he was crucified during the hours of his crucifixion and the hours that culminated his suffering and led up immediately to his death. And here we have, in the words of our text, one of those sayings, one of those sentences spoken by the Lord Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this is by any reckoning a most extraordinary saying from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Here is the eternal Son of God. He who was here is the Word who was in the beginning, and who was with God, and who was God. The Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His lips come forth these words, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? They come forth on the lips of the Savior as He is deserted by all His friends, when He is rejected by Israel, when the chief priests are mocking him, when every power in the world has turned against him, and when he is brought to the lowest of indignities, and when every manner of physical suffering and emotional suffering has been appointed to him by men, and even worse things stand behind what men are doing. And as Jesus goes through this suffering, he brings forth these words so worthy of our examination and consideration. We pray the Lord will help us to look into these words and understand something of their meaning. We should notice, first of all, here, the Savior's grief. The Savior says, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why has this been appointed for me? Why is this my experience? The one who says these things knew very well why he came into the world. He had told his disciples often that it was appointed that he must be rejected of the chief priests and of the elders and that he should be put to death. And when his disciple Peter said, Far be it from thee, O Lord, let not these things be your lot and experience. Jesus turned upon Peter and saw him as 
in that moment the instrument of the Prince of Darkness to turn the Messiah away from that work of redemption for which the Messiah had come into the world. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus well knew why He had come into the world. When Peter sought to turn him away from that course, the Savior rebuked him. What? How is it then that the Savior can ask this question, Why? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is certainly not that Jesus is ignorant of the reason why these things are happening. It is not that Jesus is surprised by the suffering that is appointed for Him. It is also not that He has become impatient as if He now would reject the appointment that God had had made for him and what the Savior had willingly undertaken to do in coming down from the glory with which he was worshipped in heaven to take upon himself the form of a servant, be made as a man, and then to undergo sorrow and death. It is not ignorance. It is not surprise. It is not impatience, but it is grief. It's the sadness of what he is experiencing. It is what we read of in Isaiah chapter 53, where we are told of the Savior's suffering by the prophet Isaiah. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Savior is bearing a load of sorrow because... That is the sorrow which we deserve to experience as the punishment for our sins. The Savior was innocent. There was no guile in His mouth. Never did He transgress the commandments of God. It was not possible for Him to do so. He is the eternal God, perfect in holiness, There is no place for iniquity in the character of the eternal God, the lawgiver. The law of God is the expression of His immaculate purity of character. There is no blemished thought that ever passes through the mind of the Lord Jesus. No evil design ever begins to emerge in His heart. No godless word is ever spoken by his lips. 
And so he doesn't deserve to experience any sorrow. He doesn't deserve any punishment. He doesn't deserve any condemnation. And yet, he's bearing the sorrow. Unspeakable. Sorrow greater than has been experienced by anyone. Sorrow greater than will be experienced by anyone. It is the accumulated weight of all the sorrow that belongs to the sins of His people, a multitude whom no man can number. And it is laid upon the head of this man. And as He approaches the cross, we read in Mark chapter 14 concerning His experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. At verse 34 of Mark 14, He says to Peter, James, and John, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Why is it that he is experiencing these things? Because God has appointed him in the love and mercy of God towards sinners. Christ has been appointed to bear the sins of his people. It is what we read of in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, how he was numbered with the transgressors, how he was identified with them to bear the sin of many. It is what we have also in the New Testament Scriptures as in 1 Peter and uh, chapter 2. And there at verse 24, we read that He has on self bear our sins in His own body on the tree. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. What does this mean? It means that the responsibility for our sins, the blame for our sins, the liability to be punished that uh, is due to us for sin, that that is laid upon the head of Jesus. And in His humanity, in His body and in His soul, there is visited from Him as an expression of the wrath and curse of God against our sin. There is visited such a torrent of the anger of God that He experiences unspeakable sadness and grief. It is not... His physical sufferings that are the depth of His experience. It is His sorrow and grief and desolation as He bears the wrath of God against the sins of His people. So Peter tells us that He suffered the just for the unjust. He suffered the just and righteous one in the place of the unjust and unrighteous ones. He stood as the substitute for sinners in the temple in the Old Testament. A person had sinned against God. The sinner must die. But it was appointed to bring the lamb, to bring the book, and to present it at the temple. And there the priest would slay the animal. The sinner must die, but the responsibility for the sin 
was, as it were, in a figure, put upon the animal, and the animal as the substitute was killed so that the sinner might live before God and be forgiven. And so it is, Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist points us to the Savior and says, Think of Jesus as that Lamb, that Passover Lamb whose blood is spilt and uh, the blood is put upon the doorposts of the house that death might not visit here, that there might be deliverance from the displeasure and wrath of God against sin. This is why Jesus says, Why? It is because in carrying such a load, there is such a depth of grief and of sorrow. Think of it in all the experience that is played out at this tribunal before Pilate, before the Sanhedrin, before the elders of the Jews, before Herod. And here is Jesus, falsely accused. Here is Jesus brought into every kind of embarrassment and and every kind of confrontation by men with their scowling angry faces and uh, with their desire to destroy him to to crush him to snuff out his life and here he is he is the king of Israel he is the messiah he is the the the, the messenger of God who has come the Lord now coming to His temple. And Israel is rising up, the covenant people of God, rising up to oppose Him and to reject Him. To bring Him to every kind of shame and to heap reproach upon His head. And His disciples, whom He's trained for three years now, that they should go forth and preach the Gospel and uh, that in their, in their testimony to Him, uh, there should be established uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these disciples, they all desert Him and flee away. And He is left with no one there. When He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, He asks His disciples to tarry with Him. He wants companionship. He wants them to stand beside Him as friends. They go to sleep. They know not how to watch and pray. Everyone uh, fails the Savior and He is left to stand alone. He is a man as well as God. He has depths of affection, feeling, there's no human sympathy for him. And then, in the sorrow that he is experiencing, as he is stripped of his clothing, as he is identified as a con- criminal, as he is condemned at a court of law, as he's put into this physical pain and made a place of mockery and scoffing as the last of his earthly possessions are taken away from him and his clothes are are divided uh, among the soldiers. Here is the Savior 
left in such depths of sorrow. And we say, but he is God, and he knows all things, and so he knows every human experience. But there is a reality of the human experience that he undergoes. And he undergoes it in a depth that extends beyond what anyone else has ever or ever will experience of sorrow. What is he doing? He's making satisfaction to divine justice. Divine justice demands that when God has been dishonored by the sin that we have committed, yes, that sin that was committed a few moments ago, that sin that was committed earlier today, those sins of the past week, yes, those, 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 those things that leave us in shame whenever we think of them in the, the years of our lives, The justice of God demanded that they they should be punished. And if we are to be forgiven, if the love of God is to find a way in which we can stand before God and not be punished and not be, be cast away from His presence in hell forever and forever, then there must be someone who steps in and takes our place and bears this this judgment so that the divine justice can be satisfied. Souls are precious. The justice of God is more precious. Human suffering is a sad thing. Offense and affront to the majesty of the Creator of all things is more important. The justice of God must be dealt with. And do we think that to deal with the justice of God and to deal with the dreadfulness of all our sins is something that won't bring sorrow? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can go into an experience and you can say, Oh, I'm anticipating this surgery is going to be difficult. The pain I'm going to have afterwards is difficult. I'm going to have chemotherapy, and I know it's going to take a lot out of me. I know it's going to be very difficult to endure this. But it's another thing to go through it yourself. It's another thing to wade into those waters. And Jesus went into waters that no one else is capable of going into. He went into the waters of bearing the wrath of God so as to swallow it up and exhaust it so that there's no more left. The wrath of God against the sins of a particular individual will leave that person in hell for all of eternity. And there will never be an end to the punishment that that person deserves to receive because of sin. But Jesus went into an eternity of hell. And because Jesus is the eternal God, because He is the infinite, immense God, He took an eternity of hell and swallowed it up and exhausted it and brought it to an end 
so that in his death there was no more to be paid. The whole punishment had been paid. We take the things that we do not want and they are carted away and put in some garbage heap, some great landfill. And it's amazing what a city will throw up all the, 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 the filth and rubbish and the discarded things that we don't want to have in our homes any longer. And it's all taken away in some place, acres and acres and acres, swallowing up some great hole, swallowing up all this garbage. Here's the Lord Jesus. He is like this great landfill of all the, the iniquity and all the filth and darkness of our lives. And, and all of that is loaded upon Him. And He bears all of these things. And the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that is involved in bearing all that eternity of God's wrath against our sins. No wonder that the Savior, true man as well as God, wading into these things can say, Why? Why? It is a cry of astonished grief. But then he says, Why hast thou forsaken me? And what do we make of this? God, thou hast forsaken me. This is God's own Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Son of the Father. This is not some second God. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And so who is this then? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is it not three persons and the one God? How can one person of the Godhead forsake another person of the Godhead? And yet there is a real desertion that has gone on here. The disciples deserted their master. The chief priests and the elders rejected the Messiah. The people cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Jesus here doesn't speak about His disciples forsaking Him. He doesn't speak about Israel forsaking Him. He says, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He speaks of how God has not given him relief. Look at all the suffering, the extent of suffering that he has undergone. And it's not let up. And you would think, well, one might hope for an escape from the worst of it. It might be endured for a little while. But will it go on and on? And will it come to the worst consequences? Or will there be relief? Will there be a rescue? Jesus spoke, of course, about a rescue. He says, do you not know that, that I might call to my Father and He would send twelve legions of angels to deliver me? But it must be so. And now He says, why hast thou forsaken me? 
he feels something. He senses something. He's experiencing something. He doesn't feel the presence of God. He feels that something is interrupted. He feels that something is withdrawn from him. And what is it? He's experiencing the wrath of God. He's lived always in the awareness of the love of his Father for him. He's lived in that awareness all of eternity. Before ever he became a man, before ever he took on any creaturely experience or identity, he had the experience of the infinite God knowing the infinite love of his Father for himself. What a knowledge. What a depth, as it were, of experience. And now here is a moment when in his human soul, in his human affections, in his human feelings, there is something withdrawn from him. And instead of feeling that all is well, he is made to feel the anger of God. He has given, been given the responsibility for all the sin that his people commit. And how does God look at the sins of his people? How does God look at any sin? He abhors it. It's abomination to him. It brings forth curse and rejection, repudiation and judgment. The person in hell has in one respect an experience that Christ did not have and will never have. And that is the person in hell has the experience of a guilty conscience knowing that they have sinned against God. The person in hell keeps on sinning against God ever increasing his his load of foul and filthy deeds accumulating to bring more and more judgment upon his head. Jesus never has the experience of sinning against God. But Jesus has the experience of the anger and wrath of God falling upon his head. He knows what it is for the the Father to make his soul to be an offering for sin. He knows what it is, as in the words of Isaiah 53, for the Father to bruise him, to put him to grief. He knows the opposition of his father against himself as the sin bearer. And he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It doesn't mean that the union between the father and the son is somehow broken up and that somehow there is a division that now takes place within the Godhead. It's not that somehow there's a rupture and a tearing apart of the relationship between the Father and the Son. 
There's never been a moment that the Father is more pleased with the obedience being rendered by His Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here is His Son in the ultimate act of submission to the Father's will and compliance with His Father's commandment. And the Father is looking at the Son and delighting in what the Son is doing. This is the fulfillment of God's glorious purpose of love for the redemption of His people. This is what the Father and the Son had devised and planned together before the foundation of the world. Jesus has come into the world and He is, he has, he is perfectly executing the, 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 the plan and purpose of God. But the Savior, even though that relationship is most illustrious in mutual delight and pleasure and love for one another at that moment, yet the Savior in His human body and soul is experiencing as the sin-bearer the terrors of God's indignation against our sin. See then the gravity, the seriousness of our sin. You give a moment's thought and you rush into some sin. It passes through your mind for a moment. Oh, if I did that, it would be wrong. But I'll, I will get some pleasure from that. I'll enjoy doing that. I'd rather not uh, experience the, the, the interruption of pleasure. I'd rather not experience the embarrassment if I would stand apart and not engage in this sin. I will go forward with this sin. These things that we do without a moment's thought. How grave it is. Every one of these sins deserves God's wrath and curse. Every one of these sins was a part of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Well, dear child of God, son of God, daughter of God, disciple of Christ, follower of the, of the Lamb, you think about your sin and say, oh, it doesn't matter that I commit this sin today. Oh, we can be so cavalier. Jesus has already suffered it all. He's already, it, will, it won't add anything more, will it? If I go ahead and commit this sin. And how do we really value the suffering of our Savior? How do we really cherish and find precious the love which Christ showed for us in dying for our sins. See the gravity of sin, its costliness. Salvation is free. It's a free gift to sinners. But it wasn't free for Christ. It's very costly to Him. See also the wonderful condescension of the Lord Jesus. You know, when the Father sent the Son into the world, the Father asked something of the Son that the Father could never have required the Son to do if the Son had not been willing to do it. It's beneath the dignity of a person in the Godhead to be spit upon, to be crucified, 
to undergo all the sorrow and suffering and hurt that Jesus underwent. It's beneath the dignity of a person in the Godhead to become a mere creature. To take into union with Himself forever the body and soul of a human being. That's beneath the dignity of the Godhead. But it's what the Son of God did in love for us. And He could stoop to do that not because the Father could lay it upon Him as a requirement, but because God is love. And He acted in a freeness of His love, in His sovereign good pleasure, unconstrained by any worthiness in ourselves, but simply because it is the delight of God to love and be good and be generous and be merciful and kind. And it flows freely from Him in a design and purpose that He has designed in the counsel of His own will. He chose to show love and mercy to redeem sinners to Himself. And so He undertook to, under, to, 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 to endure such humiliation to stoop so low in order to become a man, to suffer, to be forsaken, to make himself of no reputation in order to care for us. We're so grateful for people who care for us, for parents who care for us when we're children, for spouses who love us and care for us, for friends who love us and care for us, for brothers and sisters in the church who love us and care for us. What do we owe to the Savior for His wondrous condescension in such loving of us and such caring for us? But then finally see here the words of faith with which the, the, the saying begins, My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? We have his grief. Why? We have his sin bearing. Why hast thou forsaken me? And we have also his trust. My God. My God. Not someone else's God. But the God in whom I trust. The God whom I serve. The God who is faithful to me. The God who will answer my prayers. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, these are not words that are hopeless and despairing. These are not words in which Jesus is confused or bewildered or has lost his way or doesn't understand what is happening to him. These are words which Jesus takes from the book of Psalms and which Jesus uses, quoting the Psalms, to express his confidence and trust in God. First of all, they express his submission to the will of God. There in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded in Mark chapter 14 and at verse 34 and following when he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. And then we read, He went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. 
He looks at the suffering that is coming. He sees the dreadfulness of it. He's beginning to taste of the, of the worst of it. He sees what is entailed in drinking this cup. And then what does he say? And he said, Abba, Father. That's his trust in God. Abba, Father. All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And what you have there is the will of Jesus and his human soul submitting himself to the will of God. And there is Jesus in in absolute and consummate obedience to the will of God. He looks at the very worst that is entailed in doing the will of God. The utmost limits of suffering and sorrow and pain. And looking at that, he says, not my will, but thine be done. Now that is absolute and total obedience. There are circumstances we go through in which we are tested a little bit in our faith or patience or obedience. But then there are more difficult situations. And there are some situations that are the most demanding of all. And more is required of us. And we have to grow in faith. And we have to grow in measures of obedience. And we have to, to, uh, to, to develop that in the whole of our psychology, with all the, 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 the structure of our mind and all our physical strength, that we give ourselves to do the will of God. And here is Jesus. And he is a human being. And Jesus, as he grew, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's a true human being. He's developing. He's growing. He's learning. He's passing through experiences. In every experience, he is he is. He is absolutely holy, pure and spotless. But then he develops as this human being like any, any true human being will grow and develop and learn. And in the utmost experiences of suffering and of demand upon him, he gives himself up with everything that is within him to the obedience of his Father's will, he submits himself to God. And he acts in dependence upon God. He prays, you know, God has appointed that his people would show their dependence upon him by praying. And when Jesus came into the world, he was made like unto his brethren. And as we read in Hebrews 2, Those words from the book of Psalms are to be applied to Christ. I will put my trust in Him. Jesus trusted in God. Jesus came in a posture of of not only submission to the will of God, but depending upon God and looking up to God to care for Him and to sustain Him. And here is Jesus. And in the worst of this experience, 
He is looking to God and saying, This is my faithful God. This is the God whom I will obey. This is the God in whom I will trust. This is the God to whom I cling. And Satan may make his suggestions. And Peter, as an instrument of Satan, may make his suggestions to turn me away from the will of God. But I will cleave to my God forever. My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? And it's not despairing. It's full of hope. We read a wonderful word in Hebrews chapter 5 about the experience of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Here's the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. Here he is with his strong crying and tears and all the agony of it all. But he's crying out to God, to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard, and his prayers were answered, because he feared God and trusted in Him. What does that mean? Was he not left to die? Oh, Jesus did die. The Lord raised him out from the dead. The Lord highly exalted him. And gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we read of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he knew what was happening. He knew that he had come from God and that he was going to God. For the joy that was set before him, he had hope and he knew of the blessed outcome to this dreadful experience of sin-bearing. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He had hope. My God, my God, this is the God who will deliver me. Oh yes, he must drink this cup that the Father gives him to drink. He must endure death. But he knows what the outcome is. We have these words that are given to us in the Gospel account to set before us the sufferings of the Savior, to bring us to think upon the price that He paid for us. To think of what we owe to Him. To think of the glory of His person. The God-man. Truly God and truly man. If He were not God, He could not swallow up an eternity of wrath. If He were not man, He could not suffer and die as our substitute standing in our place. And look at what faithfulness was in him. He is the servant of the Lord. It is by his obedience that many are justified. That is his faithfulness. 
as he cleaves to his God and does what his father had sent him to do to bring forth the blessedness in all eternity for his redeemed, his beloved people. Amen. Let us pray together. Let us rise and pray. O Lord, we worship before Thee this night. We call upon Thy name. It is our inestimable privilege to speak to Thee. We thank Thee for the love and mercy that Thou hast shown to poor sinners, that Thou hast shown to us. And we come, O Lord, and cast ourselves upon Thy care and upon Thy provision to submit ourselves to the righteousness of God that is provided in Jesus Christ. And pray, O Lord, capture our hearts to love Thee and to follow Thee in faithfulness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now sing from Psalm.